to Composing Myself, a special podcast series celebrating 50 years of great composers at Wise Music. Presented by Jill Graham and Dave Holly. Welcome to Composing Myself. Today we're joined by Nico Muley, well known for his work for the concert hall, film and television and a social media star. Nico, welcome. Uh, thank you. It's good to be here. So where are you, Nico? I am right now in Paris. Um at uh, our, our mutual friend and your other client, Bryce Dessner's um, apartment. So I, I take no responsibility for the decor. Yep, fair enough. I think that's a good call. It's very nice, though. What are you doing in Europe at the moment? Um, so I um, am picking up the pieces of my career or whatever. So I, I had um, two pieces in London uh, at the Wigmore Hall, which is great. Um, one for Eloise Werner and one, and, um, and uh, one for Jess Gillum. And then I had a piece for um, Jürgen van Rijn, the trombone player at the Concertgebouw. And then I have a piece in, the, in, um, in Burgundy in three days uh, for um, Gauthier Capuçon and uh, Jean-Yves Thibaudet. And then I have some meetings here right now to figure out stuff that I'm going to do, also picking up the pieces of what, you know, what, what nuclear wasteland we live in post-COVID. Um, for wow. 2024 and 2025 and 2026. So get look, look forward to all that, Jill. Honey, I can't wait. I know about some of it. I mean, I, I think it's amazing, isn't it? In the past week, you've heard, probably heard more new pieces than you've heard in the past three years, right? That's correct. Yeah, it's been it's been a while. It's, it, it's, a, it's a nice feeling, but it's, you know, the body the body is not quite not quite used to it. And we were, we were just talking the other day, like I haven't been to an afternoon concert, you know, in three years. And it's just, it's still it's still strange to me to get to finish the concert and then walk outside and it's a light out. So I don't know, whatever. <laughs> so you're in Paris, you've been to Rome, you live in New York. Where do you prefer working? Well, uh, so right now, um, I've, I've, I, so I travel with my iMac, which everyone thinks is crazy, but it's, you know, it's a, so I have a gigantic sarcophagus, yeah. which is right over there. It's really huge, Harold. I'll move, I'll move, I'll move it into frame. It's a... Uh, it's like this big. Oh wow! As you can see it's huge, um, but it fits. It fits my whole iMac, and then I have a little backpack in which a keyboard, a MIDI keyboard, goes. Weirdly, I, I I buy MIDI keyboards and I leave them all around the world. So the one that I'm on right now, I bought and left in Bryce's closet like six years ago for mm. a moment, just like this. I have one in Tanglewood. I have one in Aspen underneath the bed. Um, so, so I bring all that and then I bring all my hard drives. And so I, tr- I try to make it so I'm never missing my studio too much because my studio is mm. fantastic and it took me years to get it right. And socially it's amazing because I, I work next to a bunch of friends, but it's really isolated. It's in a great neighborhood. So I'm, you know, the studio is great, but I've, I've taken great um, pains to make my mobile rig um, function. And, you know, it, ha- it has to function for a couple of reasons, like emotionally for me, like turning up at any one of the places we, we mentioned before you unpack it and write two notes. It doesn't matter what it is, just anything just to, so you, there's, there's continuity between, you know, so you don't go a day really without writing. I was going to say, do you, do you work every day? Do you write every day? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, unless there's some crazy, you know, some endless travel reason why not to, but I find I, Dave, David Lang, the composer, once said something that I, I agree with. He says, "You know, if, if I, I'm scared that if I didn't write for a day, I'd forget how to do it." And I think yeah. that's basically right. Um, you know, and during and during COVID, I I, I didn't write every day because I was, you know, I instead I just looked into the abyss. Uh, and then when it's when I started writing again, it was strange. You for, you forget like 
your hand doesn't remember how to do it. The muscle memory. Do, yeah. do you ever get writer's block? Um, not, not in the traditional way. Um, often I get, I can't believe I'm this far into this idea and I'm not sure if it's the right idea. Um, and, and I get another thing sometimes, which is, which is, um, uh, this piece isn't doing the kind of meta thing I thought it was going to do. So it's, so it's less about block and more about obstacle. Um, but I've never had the thing of, I don't have an idea because I feel like the world is so filled with ideas that are ripe for the <laughs> right for the taking I mean, all you need to do is like open the newspaper or or turn on the television for five seconds or read a book or whatever i mean that's 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 never an issue do, do, do you know a writer called seth godin he's, he's a marketing ideas guru but he just says sit down and type every day and in terms of writing and then yeah. that will turn into you'll get bored and you'll start creating things i do with a with a piece i do start with a big structure and i do think about you know the architecture of the thing and the geography of the thing first, but it's also nice to have things that are just kind of in the pantry, like little ideas. And I, I've over the, over the last maybe year and a half, I've been writing short piano etudes. So, um, you know, under five, just etudes, so under five minutes. And those have been great because it, it, it really does feel like little obsessions rather than, you know, r- right now I'm actually talking about writer's block 30 seconds before we were on the call. Um, I'm writing a, a 10 minute piece for orchestra which is really hard because, because, you know, a great concert opener, like, I don't know, like short ride in a fast machine or whatever, it's like six minutes, like five minutes. Right. Um, and it's fantastic. Cause it's all you need to do is one idea and you just go 12 is great. Cause 12 is like idea, middle idea, you know, recapitulation of idea and then codetta 15 is totally great. 10 is that weird spot where it's like an idea and a half and I, you know, it's, there's a strange kind of thing. So I'm not having writer's block about it, but I'm having a kind of, I find myself having to just in the shower or whatever, like listen through it in my brain to make sure that it's proportionally appropriate. Whereas if it were six minutes, I'd know that it was. And if it were 12 minutes, I'd know that it was. I, I just want to uh, talk a bit about your studio because I love visiting you in your studio in New York. I've done it a few times, sometimes at a party, sometimes to mop your fevered brow. <laughs> and other times to hang with you and Thomas Bartlett. Uh, tell us a bit about your studio space. How did you find it? How sure. often are you there? What's your what's your kind of routine, if you like, in Great. New York? Here's the cast of characters. Um, Thomas Bartlett is a really, really dear old friend. Um, he's also from Vermont. Uh, he and I met when we were 18. He also went to Columbia. He's a producer, musician, composer, you name it, he does it. Um so that's one person. Then there's two other people. One is called Pat Dillett, who's a producer, engineer, mixer, extraordinaire. Um, and then there's another called Steve Sillett, uh, who's also a musician and, and a kind of impresario. Steve and Pat, a couple of years ago, decided to go in together on what was at that time a disused studio. So it was a big glamorous, had been a big glamorous studio in the 80s. Um, and... It's on 37th, 15th, 5th, and 6th. Um, it's, a, it's a floor through. It's really, really great. So essentially, when they, when they bought it, and they were not gutting it, but they were you know, redoing kind of how a lot of it worked, they offered to me and to Thomas individual writing rooms. And writing rooms say that old-fashioned thing of, you know, it's, it's everything you need and nothing you don't. So it's quite small, but it's, it's um, you know, the perfect thing. It's soundproof. It is, um, but it's connected to both physically and digitally to this gigantic professional recording studio where you could record, you know, 20 something strings and there's a really fancy old, old, um, SSL board and there, you know, then there are a million microphones or whatever. So it's, it's a very good 
version of that where it's kind of integrated, but not. And so I go every day. Um, when I'm in New York, I go every day and I can bring the dog, which is awesome. He loves it. Um, and, um, even during COVID, I went basically every day, uh, and Tom and, and Thomas as well. And we had this kind of elaborate protocol about like who would touch what. And, you know, so, so, um, it was, that felt like it wasn't really, it wasn't really breaking the rules. Um, and I would just do everything on a bike and I don't know. So yes, the, the answer is every day when I'm in New York, like I will land back home next Thursday and I will go to the studio just to, again, to set up, set up the machine, write two notes and then go home and pass out. Are there particular times of day that you find are better for your kind of muse, if you like, for your writing? I, early morning is great, great for me. Like there, there are many things about the early morning that I find useful. I mean, it's, it's, um, I feel well. First, first of all, because you lot are in London, and so much of, and so my editor um, in your office in London, everyone's in London. So if I if I start if I get go if I start getting going at like nine thirty or ten in New York, it's already too late. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of your, you can't. It's already like a whole different mindset. So if I start at six or seven, then it's better, and then um, less traffic to get to the studio. I can just cycle up ten minutes. Um, there's you know. I also feel a kind of smug advantage over people who are still asleep. <laughs> so when they wake up at like at you know nine o'clock and like slowly make a coffee, I'm like already three hours in. <laughs> so I feel a kind of a sense of of probity and and competition. I really hate being being uh, behind. Like it it really it's you know and and the other thing is I mean now we're speaking we're speaking in generalities, but in the before times, and you know as you know, Jill, it's. If you, if you have a concert, it's not just a concert, right? It's like you have to get there, you have a thing, and then you have a drinks and the thing and the meeting that's also drinks and whatever. And then, you know, the, there are a million rituals attendant to actually going to something that starts at eight. So it's really good if you your brain is like not buzzing with something that you have to be doing at that time. And then if yeah. you can turn that off at like 4.30 or 5, then it's not, you know, <laughs> it's not chaotic. And you can listen to Offenbach or whatever. Nico, how, how was the, the the lockdown period for you? Did you Awful. did you thrive in it? Awful. No. What a terrible question. No, it was terrible. And anyone says that who says that they loved it is lying, by the way. Or I don't <laughs> want to hear about it from them. It was terrible. It was literally the worst. I I, I actually can't think of an of, of a of a more awful thing. Um, and not just for me personally, but like for the whole community. And I I'm a you know very collaborative. Like you know much of what I do is collaborative. And much of how I sustain, you know, travel and whatever is through kind of friendships with people who are making things, whatever. And to have all that go away so quickly was really, really awful um, on a on a micro level, which is to say, you know, every day I didn't know what I was doing with myself, and then a macro level, just not knowing what was going to be over. So it was it was really it was really bad. And then you know, I, I'm not, I wasn't for I don't know for not 20 years, but maybe for 15 years. It's, it's I'm in New York you know, less than half the year, really. And then, and my life is designed around that inevitability. So my partner, and I share a very small dwelling, 
like very small, which makes sense if I'm gone all the time or whatever, but, but then it's, you know, it was, it was, it was intense. And then of course, you know, it's, even as things got better, you couldn't really, I don't want to say you couldn't really talk about it, but it, 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 unless everyone I knew was feeling better, I didn't feel better at that mm-hmm. time, if that makes sense. So even though I had, I did have work and I was incredibly lucky in a lot of regards, it didn't feel good. Could you talk about um, collaborations a bit? I, I was intrigued because you do so many of them. Mm. How, how, how do they start? Where do they come from? Who asks who? And then how do you, how do you sort of play together? Mm. Well, each, interestingly, each one is totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's no formula for it. And each relationship is different, but also each, if you are, in a, you know, if you do four things with the same person, each iteration is different. So in a lot of cases, it, um, yeah, there's no way to, there's no way to generalize it really. I mean, I think, I think the, one of the reasons I like doing it, and I hope that one of the reasons I excel at it is that I am in fact incredibly flexible about who's leading the dance. So a good example is with, with um, choreographers, some, you know, some want to do it in layers where you kind of, you start, but then they pick up and then you can, you know, it's, it, it's a sort of, it's a sort of tennis of, of react, you know, reacting and others are like, just give me the finished music and I'll start. Um, and I am happy with both. Um, I'm lucky, I guess is the word people approach me. Um, and in general, they approach me based on work they've seen me do either with other, other, collab- other collaborators or, um, uh, yeah. So I think I, you know, p- people approach me ha- having a sense of my body of work. Um, but yeah, each, each thing is very different. I mean, right now I'm, I'm working with two different, two different choreographers, one of whom I think really wants a, a, a finished thing and another wants a very not finished thing to, to kind of bounce things around. And, you know, you just kind of, you just kind of figure it out. Your collaborations with in for the screen, you know, like film, and most recently, I guess the TV show Pachinko, which I thought was terrific. You know, does that have a different vibe? Do you feel very much in service as opposed to a collaborator? Um, it, it can it can go in and out of focus in terms mm. of. I mean, I think I think with something like a like um, like a TV show or, or a film or anything for screen, really, it's. I mean, you you are in service you the, the generous way to think about it is that you're in service of the project and yeah. the thing that's going on the, the the literal thing that you're in service of is the producers I and mean, you know and and composers can get fired all the time and that's fine i mean it's like it's actually kind of fun to get fired because they have to pay you to go away um but um the yeah those things are much more are much more um music for use and and you know i mean it, but honestly if i were to divide up you know, you can divide up, I, I could divide up my whole career as collaborative work and non-collaborative work, right? Yeah. And within within that, you could also say um, collaborative work in which you will get a couple of large-ish, com- large-ish comments, meaning like, oh, could we try a slow movement there? Or collaborative work in which you're going to get 400,000 tiny comments, um, which is to say mm-hmm. film, which, mm-hmm. which oftentimes, you know, just because of the nature of the art form, there are a lot of people involved and it's all happening in this really crazy order. Um, and so it goes to that saying that there'll be a lot of opinions um, flying around. Mm. So, and, and you know, but, but, and I think for some composers who do concert music, the first taste they have of film music, they're like, what the, like, how do you do this? But, but, but the tyranny of, for instance, this 10 minute orchestra piece that I'm doing right now, 
it does not exist in film music, right? Like you yeah. never don't know what you're doing. Whereas this 10 minute orchestra piece, you know, they commissioned me, no one will look at it, hear it, you know, until it's totally delivered. And, you know, no one's going to give you a comment on it. Like, you're, you know what I mean? There's not like a, there's not like a <laughs> producer at the Houston Symphony being like, well, this one oboe, you know, I wish there were actually sometimes I wish we had editors who were like a book editor, but um, you know, so, so that has its pitfalls too. And I, and I think it's great if you have a bunch of projects like that where, where no one will say anything. Um, and then, you know, and then things where people say a lot of things, they're, they're kind of complementary muscles to a certain extent. You know, just watching how composers interact in those different genres. You know, were you watching you work with Pekka Kusis, though, for example, mm. you know, you guys have a shorthand. Uh, right. Right? right? Yeah, exactly. And I think, right, long, long-time collaborators like, like Pekka Kusisto or like Nadia Sirota or Jamie McVinney or, or you know, or even Benjamin Midpia, the choreographer, when you work with someone enough, you you totally have a shorthand and you have an absolute thick, not even thick skin, that's not even the word, where it's like, I can send something to Pekka and be like, what about this? He's like, nah, no, 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 let's try it this way. Or or he can say, oh, do you want to play it? Can I try it this way? And I'll say, no, 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 let's try it the other way. And same with Nadia. I mean, even 30 seconds before, you know, like I, I just sent Nadia a thing and I was like, it's not even for her. It's for a different piece. And I thought, would you want to see it this way or this way? You know, those, those things are really, um, you know, it's a, it's a shorthand and it's, it's, I think it's important that you, your friends are your collaborators and your collaborators are your friends. And that's really how I got it started, honestly. Like, cause the, the, the music that I was writing in grad school was not music that people were exactly like rushing to commission. And, you know, for whatever reason in, in the States at that time, um, but then I started developing a body of work with with my friends, which is Nadia and Valgir Secretson and like all, the whole kind of crew of people. And based on that work, then other then kind of random works just not solvable. We're like, oh, we're interested in that. So um, that form of collaboration is incredibly close to mine. Mm-hmm. And and interestingly, like when you know when when you've worked with people for for years and years and years. I mean, I've yeah. been with Nadia for twenty years and Pekka for, I mean, God. Yeah, 15. I mean, you know, maybe not a long time. Um, you develop not just a shorthand for collaboration, but an absolute, uh, it feels like running over rocks at the beach rather than crawling when, you, when you're yeah. writing for them. And I wrote this this violin concerto for Pekka, which is complicated, but it was also like pure joy the whole time because I can imagine him playing it. And I can imagine him working on it and struggling with certain things. And same with same with choreographers. Like like I I had a really amazing moment with with Benjamin Mupier once and he you know he and I have been working together since the beginning of time. We've made a million pieces from various sizes and scales. And you know the scariest yeah. thing, Jill, as you as you know better than anyone, is the first time you're on stage in a ballet with the orchestra is uh-huh. terrifying because you've been working with MIDI and of course the orchestra is a different tempo and there's all this other stuff and you sing. There are a million things that can be, you know, it's, it's completely petrifying. And that's when you really think, you know, I should, I should just be, you know, thrown into the, into the sin, you know, like the, I have no business. And so, so Benjamin and I, again, having endured 15, you know, 10 such first rehearsals, um, and you know, it's tense, like, cause you have no time to do anything and it's, and you're like in the theater and you're yelling on this microphone and we got to maybe, you know, maybe our 10th collaboration is four or five years ago. And we had that rehearsal and it was great. And we looked at each other and we were like, we know how to do this now. Like it's been 15 years, but now not only do we know how to do it, but we know what will fix itself. 
Like we know what does not need us to be like faster, slower. Like it will be fine. Like to, and and understanding in one's process the things that will just work themselves out. I think is a is one of the biggest like life lessons that I learned in the last mm-hmm. ten years. Confidence and trust. Yeah. Do Do you compose uh, conduct when you're? Um, I've been doing yeah. it more. Yeah. Um, I really, I really like it because it, I mean, it's pretty terrifying to be in the audience when your work is being done. There's nothing you can do about it. Mm. Uh, whereas at least if I'm conducting it, it's my fault if it gets fucked up. Do you ever listen to your, your music that you've, you've written and, and, and enjoyed it? Or are you constantly listening to things that you could have done differently? Or Yeah, it's a combination. It's a combination of both. I mean, I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a pretty equal combination of both. I mean, I think if you, there's a kind of sleep on it rule that I think is good, both for, both for active composition and for, and for, you know, revisiting older work. Um, you know, something... Uh, something I'm dealing with now is a, is a piece of mine from like 2007, 2008. It's just been re-recorded. This piece called Impossible Things, also for Pekka Kusisto. Um, and by um, Nick Pond, the, the tenor has just re-recorded it. And, you know, because it's a recording, they were sending me, they were sending me, you know, do you want this edited? And, and, and it was interesting because I, I kind of hadn't really engaged that piece in a decade. And then going back to it, I was like, oh, cool. I really like this. Um Whereas, you know, if, if you asked me to listen to something I wrote yesterday, I'd probably be like, oh, 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 like, you know, see all the all the kind of faults in it. When I listen to music, I travel through time to when I first heard it or associations with that music. Do you travel back to what it was like when you were making it? That's a, you know, that's a funny question. And it's a funny, it's, you know, I like, I don't, I don't know who's, I don't know who's listening to this, but I'll, you know, this is not like a secret, but I um, am bipolar. And there was a period of time when I was in a manic, state that I just don't remember. And interestingly, that's when a lot of the really good stuff <laughs> happened. And it's, it's funny because, and you know, this is something that one deals with in one's therapeutic process, but it's like trying to revisit, you know, oftentimes I have in total, not just, not just like a, a memory where it's like, Oh, I, that was, that was when I was in London or whatever. I'm like, I knew exactly where the chair was. I knew exactly where, you know, you kind of remember. And then there's a whole, there's a chunk of chunk of time where I just don't remember at all. Mm-hmm. And, and there's something kind of sad about that, but also kind of magical about that. It's like, it's like, um, you know, it's like the Easter bunny came in the middle of the night and left me a bunch of random eggs. And I'm like, Oh, cool. That piece. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not, not to, not to put too, um, too, too macabre a point on it, but, but interestingly that, you know, sometimes the things that I remember about pieces were, um, are really weird, specific details, about about figuring something out and sometimes you can search your email and find it and sometimes you can search your drafts folder and find it and um you know i i take pictures of all my manuscript j- mm. just in case i lose it or whatever so you can you want to say you one can go through all that and and kind of revisit and, th- and then you see like you know the sort of coffee scene you're like oh my god i remember that mug from that crazy apartment i rented in villiers street or whatever <laughs> Which, by the way, is the worst place to write music. It was literally across from heaven. Number one, it was loud. Number two, all my friends would go to heaven and then call me on their way out and be like, girl, we're coming over. It was like, it's four o'clock in the morning. Are you crazy? And of course you buzz them in. Or in the mornings, you come down. It didn't matter what day what day it was. You come down and you couldn't open the front door because like four Australian girls were passed out in their own sick. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's like, okay, great. Like this is this is where we live now. Anyway, I do to any aspiring composers or artists, I do not recommend. Also, also, it was so close to um to um Gordon's wine bar. Mm. Yeah. I don't know if if you know any priests you know that they they really need half an excuse for a little sherry in the afternoon. So, of course, it was like, <laughs> Jill, you can imagine exactly the scene. Four, come 4.45 on a Tuesday. Because <laughs> after, after Evensong, what are you going to do? You're like, you go to Gordon's. you to make composing right. a career um good question i mean i feel like i feel like i have a i have a deep a deep not disadvantage but but oddity which is i'm not very ambitious i'm just kind of reactive yeah. <laughs> um mm-hmm. so i you know i never have big plans and i'm just kind of i you know i, I feel like since i'm in high school really i've just been been kind of reacting to what's in front of me but i would say you know my earliest musical experiences i was you know as pianist as 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 kids are and not very good at it. Um, but I was also singing in this Anglican, Anglican mm-hmm. boys choir or, you know, boys and men's choir. Um, and that tradition in combination with learning the piano in the boring way that, or not the boring way, but in the kind of standard pedagogical way, something clicked um, when I was maybe, you know, 11 or 12. And I thought, okay, this is, this is really interesting. And I was getting these kind of, you you know when you, when you get struck by something when you get shocked by something or when you when you really you know Im, embody a piece and you know, there may, there may be ten pieces that, that you know when you're ten or eleven when they hit you for the first time it's, mm. it's random stuff right so it'll be like you know the one bird motet and one you know Judith Weird Carol or uh, you know one chord from a Bach three part invention. Or, you know, there, there's so many little, or Shostakovich, some of these little things that just embed themselves in you. Um, so, so really, since then, I've just been, I've just been kind of making and seeing what, what that is. But I think also, I mean, you know, whatever my my like so-called career is, it's pretty all over the place in terms of, you know, the specificity of some of the projects. Um, and I think that's, I think that's just related to what I liked when I was 11, you know, and I think, I mean, I think I, you know, cause I write so much sacred music and, and much of that is trying, it's like me at the age of 40, trying to write a little note to myself at 11 being like, here's something for you. You know what I mean? And, mm. and I, I was thinking about this the other day. It's like when, you know, there are all those pieces that struck you, but, but some, one of the first pieces that I really thought it, it felt like someone was coming from you know, beyond the grave and be like, this one's for you. This is a present. Um, was the Britain today I'm in C, which is yeah. so good. So good. And there are these treble mo- solos that like extend over and there are these, some of these chords are so crazy. And, and you know, that was a moment where I thought, you know, if I can write something like that, that someone like me at that time could react to, then I think my job is, my job is done. <laughs> so whether or not that happens in church or whether or not that happens in a ballet or whatever, I think if, you know, even just one, if you get someone, mm-hmm. that's, I think that's like a, a good, a good aim. 
I'll, I'll never forget a famous meeting we had with Richard Rodney Bennett, you know, and if I were to share with you the fact that the fact that you said to him that you'd loved singing a piece of his choral music, then inspired him to go and write a whole bunch of new Christmas carols, you know? Yeah. And exactly what you're talking about, you know, he gave you something and then you right. gave it back to him. And right, and Lily My Liking is one of those things. It, it was just so mm. beautiful. And that and I remember specifically that, that first cadence. Yeah. And that first cadence in that piece, you think, well, you know, it's it's super it's traditional or it's looking at tradition, but it's coming at it from this harmonically very interesting thing. It's incredibly mm-hmm. sight readable, but also it does a magic trick. There's a lot going on, and it's just four parts you know and and and, um yeah i think i think about those moments all the time and and you know one one would think that they fade but they really don't no and i think for him you know it really it was like it was a a particular period in his life where he wasn't writing he was making a load of collages cutting things up and drinking screwdrivers and having a jolly time and he said and when you left he said i can do that you know and then we had six new christmas carols Right, that's very that's very sweet. I'm glad I I'm 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 yeah. glad that that's <laughs> I, yeah. I mean that that's that's the trick, right? Is like right. It's intergenerational gifting. Also, you remind me of him as a composer because you perform, you write film music, you write great concert music. You've got a real um, you cherish tradition mm. in the same way as he did, and you write music you want to listen to. Yes, and th- and I thank you for that. I mean, it's it's. You know, he he was a really good model for how to do it, um, and I think you know a good a good thing is as you say, music you want to listen to. I mean, I have always tried to write music that people want to listen to on purpose, um, <laughs> which <laughs> which I feel like is not true of some music. I mean, there's definitely there's definitely the case. I mean, I, I I do think that it is it is good to slip a little bit of contemporary music in for people who don't think that they like it or say that they don't like it, but they actually do, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's one good strategy, but the more you do that, I just think, I just think it's not great to treat new music like the Brussels sprouts that no one actually wants, but you endure <laughs> when it comes with your pork chop or whatever it is that you actually were there for, you know? And, and, and so often that, that's how it feels like with programming, right? Where it's like, well, you know, you came for Bruckner, but <laughs> it's like, we have a little amuse-bouche of, of, you know, boulez or something, which actually I would love, but, you know, some, or, or something, something more seminal pieces of yours were composed and completely screwed up by the pandemic weren't they yeah which were those that was that was the piano concerto double concerto and shrink oh and shrink yeah so right there are two two big concerti all for friends um you know that god I, i blocked out shrink so so shrink is the piece for pekka kusisto and strings um we managed to get it we premiered it so it happened it happened in australia Minneapolis, and then we were basically yanked off the stage with a with a crozier on in Norway, um, and it was it was Pekka's first concert as the kind of incoming artistic director of the Norwegian Chamber Orchestra, and you know things. It was early. It was early March, 
2020, early March 2020. Um, and we had that. And then the next week I was going for like an evening of my work at Sadler's Wells with three different choreographers. And, you know, it was like, things were feeling awesome, right? I had all this stuff lined up. And then like in the summer, there was going to be this double piano concerto for Katia and Marie Labec, who live like, basically, I can sort of see their house right here. And, and, you know, I've been obsessed with since I was sentient. Um, and then, you know, when, when the Norwegian government was like, you can't have more than 50 people in a room, we started thinking, oh, this is a little weird, isn't it? And then things really kind of exploded. Um, and yeah, it was hard. I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of put it out of mind. Um, mm-hmm. it's just cause it's so terrible. What I was trying to say before, which I, I think I did a clumsy way of saying, it, but there are points in one's career where I think it was, oh, I don't even know how to say this without sounding completely crazy. It was terrible, but I was in an okay place in my career such that it wasn't, if, if, this, had, if this had been six years ago or seven years ago in terms of like where I was in like output mode, I think it would have been a lot more emotionally crazy. Um, in the sense that I have so many friends where it's like that season was going to be like that, the time they did a title role, you know, yeah. at the opera house with the Met or the time that their big piece, you know, or that their, that their first opera happened or that, you know, the, the right concerto with the right orchestra or, you know, whatever, what, that, that stuff is so heartbreaking, especially because, you know, what, what I learned in, in this, in this period is that bigger stuff mm-hmm. is harder to make happen again. Yeah. So more flexible, smaller pieces. Yeah, sure. It's like you can figure it out. There's like six people involved and, and a you know, concert has, but it's like an opera is not six people. And it's like this conductor and this thing and this thing, and it has to be locked in like this and this singer and whatever. And like Kirijikana, like, you know, whatever it is, like there, there, are, a lot, <laughs> there are a lot of X factors. Yeah. Um, and, th- and that, you know, that was hard to, it was hard to process all of that because, huh. you, you know, it was hard to figure out how much of, how much of your own work you're you're meant to sort of mourn <laughs> or like back burner yeah. and how to be most how to be helpful for other people and you know one of the things that I was really happy about with this TV show was that I got to hire all my friends to play on the soundtrack that was cool I mean you know I one of the one of the reasons I was sort of excited about that was I knew that I could at least give something back to the ecosystem yeah. Cause it's, and, and you know, this is the this yeah, yeah. other interesting is, is people were like, well, you're a composer. You can still compose. Like you don't need people around you to compose. But I was like, well, I kind of do. Like, I don't need them like in the room at that time, but I need them, you know, I want to see them at 545 at the bar where we always go after their full day so we can talk about it. And then that becomes something that I think about the next, you know, so anyway, mm-hmm. that's a roundabout way of saying, of saying, um, you know, I was, I was simultaneously super pissed and sad about all my stuff, but also trying to be hyper-conscious of like the yeah. bigger ecosystem of, mm. of what was happening. And, and at the same time, also the much larger conversations about, about, you know, what it is that we're actually doing and like who, you know, who is the audience and who are the people who's, who's, whose work is centered and, and who are the, who are the artists who, you know, there, there was, there were much larger conversations happening too. So it wasn't just me being like, woe is me, like my double piano contributor. Mm-hmm. It's like a bigger, it's a bigger, a bigger thing. Is there anything in 
Paris that you're looking forward to going out to eat? Well, I leave, I leave tomorrow and I'm doing this, I'm going to this crazy fest, music, chamber music festival that's just, it's wine and chamber music in, uh-huh. in Burgundy and in, in Clavoujob. So I'm actually really looking forward to that. Paris is interesting because I, I sort of love eating out here, but I also just love cooking here. And I love just going into one of these markets and being like, you know, so I, I made myself like monkfish the other night and it's, it's kind of what I do in New York too. Like, again, going out is great, but there's something kind of magical about like sitting in this little airy with a really nice bottle of wine and just like a meal that I cooked. And, you know, so tonight I'm, I'm of two minds about what is going to come to pass. Like either I will go to the market and see what looks cool and make it happen. Um, like I saw some rabbit saddle of mild interest over there. Um, mm-hmm. Or I will walk towards the Cambodian restaurant, Le Cambodge, which I love because Cambodian food was part of my high school experience and you cannot get it anywhere um, except for like a couple of places in the States, but certainly not New York. And um, so I'm going to walk towards it and maybe go to it and have like half a meal and then maybe go to like a bistro over there and see, but or not or whatever. That's fantastic. I think I think that's probably a great way to bring this conversation to a to a close. <laughs>